Heterodorks! Heterodox dorks! Hello, turfs and trannies. Welcome to wonderful 2023. And you are listening to Heterodorks. My name is Corinna Cohn, and I am here with my co-host. My name is Nina Paley, and we have a special guest heterodork today. She is from the land of the Scoots, Scootland, and her name is Elaine Merkin Miller. Welcome, Elaine. <laughs> I believe it is now, yes. <laughs> yes, I seem to have got myself a whole brand new list of nicknames, um, but some of them are very funny. So those of you who have not been following Elaine's adventures via Twitter or wherever else she is haunting, uh, do you want to fill in our listeners as to what you've been up to and how you gain notoriety? Well, I'm a pelvic health physio. That's what my job is. So I work in women's health, um, leaky ladies and sexual dysfunctions. And and the problem with all of that is it's embarrassing. Nobody wants to talk about incontinence and things like that. So I started using um, humour to try and evangelise about why physio is so good for these issues. Um, and I wrote a comedy show called Gusset Grippers about pelvic floors that did really quite well. Um, in that I should channel my inner confident middle-class man um, and just down. It did really well. <laughs> um, it sold out at the Fringe in Edinburgh. Edinburgh Fringe, if you don't know, it's it's the world's biggest arts festival. It's enormous. It goes on for the month and I think there's five different festivals all at the same time. So to get to do well there is quite good. And so I was invited out to Australia to their fringes and I won the comedy award with that. So it did well. And I thought that I would just carry on using humour as a health promotion tool. And as part of my work, I had been trying to engage with the Scottish government um, to try and improve health services for women and also for people that have got a gender difference because our service management in Scotland is not good. The waiting lists are are dreadful. It's about four years at the moment to be seen at a gender clinic. And I actually thought I was doing quite well, plodding along with these civil servants and making what I thought was useful contributions. And then last year on International Women's Day, my cabinet secretary, who's you know one of the most powerful people in the country and a woman, said in Parliament that no man would ever seek to do harm. No man would ever pretend to be something that he's not in order to seek to do harm to a woman. And I got very cross about it because while I had been thinking about genitals and pelvic floors, there had been a big fuss in Scotland about reforms that the government wanted to bring into the Gender Recognition Act, which would mean that anybody in Scotland can self-declare that they are are transgender. So there's no need to see a medic. There's no need to live in, as if you were of the opposite sex for a period of time. You just pay a fiver, fill out a form, job done. And obviously that has implications for, um, for women as well as for the trans-identified community. Because whilst nobody would ever want anybody's life to be made more different difficult because they've got a gender difference than it needs to be. There is a clash between what trans women want to access in Scotland in order to be seen as being of their adopted gender and what women's rights are to privacy, safety and dignity. 
and the government has dismissed that clash completely. They wouldn't engage with women, women of faith, women with disabilities, women who have, um, you know, access to trauma centres. None of these women's voices were heard and they were determined to put this bill through, even though it was effectively removing women's rights. And I got cross about it. So I started after my cabinet secretary said this untruth that no man would ever seek to do harm to a woman by pretending to be something that he's not. I just lost my temper um, because I thought they're not going to listen. They're not prepared to actually hear what the population want and need. And they're not prepared to have the sensible grown-up conversation that's required about how do we balance two separate groups' needs and rights. There has to be a way of resolving it, but they just stuck their fingers in their ears. So I started to become much more active in the women's rights movements because I think that these things are just fundamental and got more and more exasperated. The women's rights movement in Scotland is really interesting because it's just grassroots. There's no way of measuring it. There's no way of, there's not a, a manifesto. There was a political analysis got in touch with me and asked if he could come along to observe some of our meetings. Like, you've no idea. It's, it's really not like that. It's just people from all different backgrounds, both female and male people, and both people that have a gender difference and people who don't, who all think that this is going to be a big issue in Scotland. There's no structure. There's no head office. It's not a political party. And despite this, um, you know, lack of well, just structure, I suppose. They've been incredibly powerful, probably because of that, actually, because it's just a collaboration. So the ones of us who are local to Edinburgh decided that we would go and observe the debates that they were having when it got to the stage of the bill where they were in um, Parliament. And it was really interesting being sitting there watching our politicians make these decisions with having this backdrop of people that their decisions were going to directly impact. I don't think they've ever been in that situation before. Um, on the Tuesday, they voted to reject an amendment to the bill, which is very badly written. That's part of the problems with it. It's, it's bad law. They rejected an, an amendment that would say that a male person who identified as female. Now, remember, that doesn't mean that they're transgender. It means that they've just got a piece of paper. They don't necessarily have to have a gender difference. If that person is convicted of a sexual offence, they would be allowed to be placed in a female prison. So they basically decided that the desires of rapists mattered more than the safety of women, incarcerated women. And... You know, this is supposed to be a civilised country. So when they voted that through, we knew that the vote was going to go through. We knew that we were going to land up with this bill being placed in law. But they rejected all of the amendments. And when they rejected that one, I thought, like, this is so bad. We need the whole world. The whole world was watching what goes on in Turf Island. And this particular bill is really significant when it comes to women's rights. And I knew that the vote was going to go through and I knew that there would be clapping and cheering from the people who have a different opinion from me. And, you know, I actually wouldn't mind if the vote had gone through and they had ever listened to the arguments from the other side, but they didn't anyway. Between the clapping and the cheering, I knew there would be a two-minute window 
to do something to steal the photo that my first minister wanted of victory, because this has been six years of effort to get it through, and it appears to be key to their policies for reasons that remain unclear to me. So I decided that I would do a protest and it had to be something that was going to be very visual, that would catch the attention of everybody in the in the chamber. And it had to be something that I could defend in court because I expected to get into trouble. Um, so I decided in Scotland, you know, we have kilts as part of traditional male dress. And one of the 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 things that men do usually in a stag night is they lift their kilt because men often they don't wear underwear underneath their kilt. Um, so they would effectively flash, you know, if it, if it was in any other circumstance and you were wearing a kilt, it would be a sexual offence, it would be a public disorder offence. But if you've got a kilt on, it's all right, nobody really minds. It's got, <laughs> saying it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. It's almost traditional at a wedding that somebody will flash, but it's all right because they're wearing a kilt. It's not a sexually aggressive thing. Um, or if it is, I haven't seen that myself. So I thought, I'll do that because the government are effectively removing my rights as a female person. So I'll just make a male. Um, but I didn't really want to expose myself because that would be a crime. And it would be quite good if I wasn't arrested. So I put on nude coloured tights and nude coloured knickers. And I made myself a, a merkin out of funky fur, like fake pubes. And I stitched them on and sat there all day. <laughs> waiting for this thing to go through and once the clapping had finished I got up on my feet and said I actually don't remember what I said but it was something like if my government are going to behave without decency towards women then I will be indecent and I lifted my skirt as if I was going to flash them and then <laughs> I was so angry I have never been so angry in my whole life and what I didn't know was that one of the politicians was filming it, which is against all the rules. You're not allowed to film in Parliament. And when I got up and started shrieking like a lunatic, he recorded it. And that landed up in the newspaper and that landed up all over the world. So me flashing Parliament and I looked nuts like my my one of my kids was quite upset because she didn't recognize me um and also they didn't know that I was going to do it which is unfortunate um I had told them but they didn't really think they thought I was kidding and um because <laughs> obviously who would do such a thing um so the first they knew about it because this all went through and then we went to the pub and um, by the time I got home it was in it was in the Front page, front page of the newspaper online that my husband reads. So the first thing he learned was when he clicked on, clicked on the newspaper and here's his wife standing flash in Parliament. And my kids learned off of Reddit and um, Snapchat. So to say that things have been a bit tense in my house for three weeks would be an understatement. But I knew that what I was doing was provocative. Like, you know, because it is women exposing themselves purposefully is a tradition. It goes back to the Greek times, anasigma it's called. And it's really provocative. In fact, there was a woman in the States did it recently during the Portland riots. She was called the Athens, oh no, in a minute I'll remember her name. Oh, that's right, Athena, the naked Athena, they called her. So the mm. riot police were there 
and they look really like your policing system is different to what we have in Scotland. We don't have guns at all in Scotland. The the policemen just give you an extra hard stare and you're supposed to behave yourself, you know. So so watching the footage of actual they look militarized to me, you know, they have they have heavy equipment sitting there and these bright, bright lights on these protesters, and then this young, beautiful woman, very, very slim, gorgeous looking woman just strutted forward from the crowd and the footage is of of her from behind so she's lit up and she's almost silhouetted because of the way that it's filmed she sits down completely naked in front of this military operation and starts doing yoga and she's sitting with her legs completely spread and i and they didn't know what to do because it's so confronting having a woman that you know the male gaze and women being objectified and women's bodies being judged and all of these things completely flips when a woman does it herself voluntarily the men generally speaking have no idea how to handle it and that's what happens in the scottish parliament which i didn't expect that they would think it was real because the merkin that had was made out of funky fur and it was massive (laughs) like (laughs) I I have learned a lot that I, you know in my work with women's <laughs> women's bits. I'm right. Nobody knows anything about women's genitals. The the number of people online who thought that that was my actual pubic hair. Um, there's there's several people who appear to have done a deep dive into um, explaining that I am transgender and I am actually male, and. It was so that somebody sent it to me. This woman had done like a big project, sort of looking at my pelvis, where she imagined my pelvis would be in the angle of my legs and about my chin. And um and and she was sure that I'm a male person because these hips have <laughs> are not built for childbearing. Um okay. Did you pay your fiver? Because <laughs> you might you might be male. Yeah. Did you register? Like, I think it counts as um, evidence, actually. If other people are there to validate that I... If I said I was male and I can use that as evidence, I think I could probably get through and get a gender certificate. Um, well, I'll, I'll validate you. Oh. Nina, Nina won't. She's a terrible turf. I know. I'm a, I'm a I'll validate you. Hey, I have a bunch of questions. Good, good, a good. bunch of questions about things that you said. Okay, so first of all, this video that was taken of you that I saw and everybody in the world saw... Uh, that was illegal? Yeah. That was an illegally shot video? What are the consequences for the person who took the video? Well, I didn't know who had taken it. I didn't know it existed until somebody showed me and said, um, you know, <laughs> uh-oh. Um, so he is a, a politician. He's a, a member of the opposition to the Scottish government. And um, I would say that he took a great personal risk. Um, he is to be disciplined. He did apologise to Parliament and he is to be disciplined, which I think happened yesterday, um, that he to sit down and be shamefaced and take his medicine. But actually, because I had disrupted, the parliamentary officer had suspended Parliament at that moment. So his defence is Parliament wasn't sitting because at that moment it was in suspension which the government mm. hadn't clocked well, that's cheeky. i know i'm like actually that is bright good for you like they're gonna try and he'll i don't know if there'll be some sanction against him but he's an elected representative so they can't really stop him from participating i don't know what the consequences are from his own party i think they're pretty pleased because it 
it became a thing of its own, the video, and it just highlighted repeatedly their point of view, which is that we need to have a proper discussion about this before you put in bad law. Okay, next question. You said gender difference, which is a term I haven't heard. Uh, what do you mean by gender difference? I can guess, I did guess, but since that's not a term in circulation that I've heard. Well, I'm trying to be precise with language nowadays because um, there's an academic called Carleen Gribble, who's an Australian woman who her background's actually looking at um, breastfeeding and emergency. Oh gosh, I've forgotten the word. Like what she researches is the care and provisions for mothers with infants in emergency situations like the bushfires in Australia. How do you manage women fleeing Mm. natural disasters with tiny babes in arms? Um, But as part of that work, because it's centred on female people, then the creep where women has, uh, has in medicine and research been changed, the meaning of the word no longer means adult human female, it now includes people that are male but are trans identified, so trans women. And this has led to harm in healthcare. The muddling up of male and female means that if you're trying to research a population, you can't be precise now. And she did this amazing paper that examined the harms, measurable harms that have been done to female people because of the muddling up of language. Um, things like women not so if you call a woman a cervix haver in order to encourage her to go and have a smear test or a pap test is it pap smear you call them pap tests we call them pap smear yeah Um, then if she doesn't recognize herself as being a cervix haver she's not going to go and have that examination and some women you know they get cervical cancer and die so using the word that the population recognizes in order to make them realise this message is meant for you really is fundamental if you're talking about health promotion. So I listened a lot to what Carleen said and one of the things that is unclear in Scotland is what trans actually means. Because if you have self-ID, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have self you have um, gender dysphoria and that you're what we would normally think of as a person that is transgender that you know this is the solution to the distress and it means that in Scotland we have no difference between somebody who has a fetish or somebody who has you know um, feelings of distress about their body that are related not to to gender dysphoria but to autism or you know there's all sorts of reasons why people have these challenges and it's not necessary that all of them are actually transgender in the reading that I've done. Um, I think it's quite clear that there's a very, there's a significant difference between the needs of a 13 year old female person who all of a sudden feels like, you know, they're very uncomfortable with their body and they don't want to live in a female body anymore compared to a person who's in their mid fifties and has been male and at the top of their career and been married and had children and then you know, has a compulsion to dress as using judicial female clothing. And that is more of a fetishistic background that becomes a compulsion that can take over their lives. The needs of those two groups of people are very, very different. And there's a complete lack of clarity in the literature, in the research and law and in society about what we mean once we put all of these people under the same umbrella. 
So I think that, you know, gender distress is clearly real. There's clearly people that have, their lives are, are you know, deeply challenged because of these difficulties that they're experiencing and that deserves respect and management, but it also doesn't apply to everybody, not in Scotland anymore, because now we have people that don't have any gender challenges at all, any feelings of distress, who just pretend so that they can get into women's spaces for nefarious reasons. Can you say quickly what gender difference means? Well, I find it difficult because I don't have a sense of gender at all. At all. I just have a sex. I'm just me. I understand that other people do and that it's to do with being a sense of being masculine or feminine. And that if that doesn't match your physical sex, that is distressing. And I respect that. But it's not it's not a sense that I have at all. So I, I remain a bit confused, if I'm perfectly honest. You know, I would find it difficult to explain. And I keep looking for a, for a definition of it. I can't really find one yet. Not not something that's succinct. It's circular, isn't it? It's somebody that... I, w- I would say fluid. <laughs> you think... It's gender fluid. What, what is the definition? It's yes. de- definition fluid. It's definition yeah. fluid. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Because it's it's not... If, if something is experienced in the same way by a large number of people, you can define it. And because this seems to be a thing that's very individual and it means one thing to one person, a different thing to another person, how can you legislate for it? How can you create services to m- meet a need that you can't describe? I, I do struggle with it. So gender difference is good because it's just acknowledging that someone is making a claim that something about them is different. Yeah. And I, we don't understand it. Yeah. We can't define it, but they're making that claim and therefore they have a gender difference. And if it is a source of distress, that distress is real, you know, and it does need to be managed. They do need to have some sort of input to, to reduce their distress, but not everybody is distressed. Some people are rather enjoying it and using it which I think is actually a hate crime now in Scotland to say that out loud. So, yeah. yeah. We had scheduled with you, Elaine, about, uh, I guess, halfway into 2022. And at that time you were ramping up to present at Edinburgh Borough. Am I pronouncing that wrong? I probably am. Americans, we, we, we can't pronounce we're anything. We're Americans. Right. That's yes. the great thing. <laughs> I'm, the the funky type. Um, there's a lot of subversion and comedy, and a lot of poking fun of selves and poking fun of others. And and this is something that appears it's it's uh, for certain groups now. Uh, they are exempt from participating. They're they're being excluded from comedy, at least in uh, terms of being subjects of comedy. And there was some opposition to your presenting uh, your program at the festival. Can, can you talk about that yeah, a little bit? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so after the, the show about pelvic floors, I wrote one about vulvas because the data in the UK was that 50% of UK women didn't know the difference between their vulva and their vagina. And that's ridiculous because most women know the difference between their knee and their elbow and also between a penis and a testicle. So why is this a mystery? So I wrote a show called Viva Your Vulva, The Whole Story. And... Um, 
built a vulva on stage. So I had a prop that I, it was all on magnets. So I went through all the bits that are in a woman's pants. And I thought it was inclusive because I covered um, female people of all ages who had had children who ha or who had women of faith, women with disabilities, women of different sexualities, and trans men and non-binary uh, non identified female people. However, I didn't include trans women because trans women's needs are very different and it was only a 60 minute show. There's only so much that you can say and that was a crime. Um, so mm. some people were very upset with me because they said it was exclusionary and it was turf because it wasn't focused around people who don't have vulvas. And I didn't really help my case because I just was very flippant about it and said, well, I also don't include 17th century French architecture because it also doesn't have vulvas. So, you know, there's a number of things that aren't in the show <laughs> for good reason. And it all got very heated. It was really interesting that I got hassled in the street and I got spat at and people shouted at me and there was lots of... Um, very clear disapproval from the staff in the venue who hassled my audience. Um, there was a lot of press, a lot of online stuff. And all it did was bring attention to the show, which sold more tickets. And I landed up getting reviewed with two five-star reviews from very respected publications. So they actually did me a huge favour. To this day, I still can't understand what the problem was because, you know... I think it's reasonable to say that a trans woman who has had genital surgery, their needs for their genitals are very different from that from a person that's born female. It's it's just a fact. And if that upsets people, then I, I think that probably the surgery hasn't addressed all of their gender distress. I think they probably need more, more support. But to just pick on me and say that I have to shut up, well, it didn't really work. Um, it was really interesting. What happened was the women, the sort of the women network scooped me up and just started flyering and helping me out. It was really quite amazing. Um, so, yeah, that's I made myself very unpopular because I was saying the wrong things. And it was different from what happened to the likes of Dave Chappelle, who got, well, can't cancel Dave Chappelle, but he got into trouble for making if you looked at the social media, it was as if he had been mocking a trans woman. But when you watched his show, I didn't think that's what he was doing at all. He spoke very compassionately and with great sorrow about the loss of his friend. And actually, what he did there wasn't comedy. It wasn't making jokes about that person. It was it was proper proper grief. I interpreted what he was uh, had in his set as. Um, but you're right. You're the 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 current climate is there are some topics that you're not allowed to joke about and that worries me because once something whether it's a group of people or whether it's a, a you know a political topic becomes above mockery then it, it becomes a bit dangerous you should be able to joke about absolutely anything you just have to be very very good to make it funny if it's something that is deeply socially unacceptable um but you know if somebody can make a rape joke that is funny fair play to them I quite often, I, I make a point of going and seeing comedians that I, I don't enjoy, you know, that I find that are misogynistic to see how they do it because they can make it funny. But yeah, you're right. Transgender issues are not to be mocked, which why not? What's wrong with that? You know? So on 
this subject a little bit, uh, the subject of vulvas and female anatomy. A listener asked us to get an expert on gynecology to explain once and for all why male people cannot have periods, why trans women don't have periods, because you may know that it is popular now for a subset of trans-identified male people to insist that they are having periods and that they're real periods, and why don't we respect that they're having periods and we have a couple different male people advertising Tampax tampons. And can you just lay down the facts about why this is not true? Yeah, this is why I am trying to write a book because the level of ignorance that we have about what female bodies have in general terms in you know industrialized countries is actually terrifying because if you don't understand that menstruation is something that happens to female people and if you are male and you believe that menstruation is something that you will achieve through your transition then somebody has either lied to you or or has not been able to communicate properly to you about what a reasonable expectation is from your transition and, and I suspect that quite a lot of those people that say that they menstruate are falling into the category of people who have got a fetish that is starting to take over part of their, their rational thinking and it possibly needs some help and support. So in order to have a period, in order to menstruate, you need a uterus. That's it. In, in your body, connected to, like not in a jar. Preferably not. Aww. No, preferably not in a jar. Um, although <laughs> that will be the next thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just not possible. And I think that because there's all these taboos and shame and stigma that surround the messy things that female bodies do, uh, a lot of people who don't menstruate have no idea what it's like. That's why these myths can be perpetuated. So, People think that it's, you know, flooding, like gushing out of um, bright red blood, which is can be the case for a short period of time, but it's not the general standard experience of the majority of women for five days. It was one of your, was that senators thought that you could just turn off having a period? That you could you just, just stop clench it? hard enough. Yeah, I'm, I yeah. mean, do enough kegels and that'll stop it. Like it worries me, it genuinely worries me that there are trans women out there that are going through this huge life change with unrealistic expectations. If you are male, you will not menstruate full stop. You will not be able to sustain a pregnancy. And if, if that is a source of sadness and difficulty, you deserve support to manage your expectations and manage the, the sadness that that brings. But no, I think what I've read is, or heard actually, some um, trans women tell me is that some of the, when they're on estrogen, um, it can irritate the digestive system. So that seems to be what they're feeling. But it's turned into a whole thing. So you can get, you can get um, a product, a little um, silicon infant shaped item. 
Yeah, so that you can feel childbirth and you start off with a very small one and then you would work your way up to something that probably would damage your sphincter and and you give birth to this Wait, little... That's, that's, that's the worst thing that I've heard <laughs> in 2023 and I'm, I'm just prepared to stop this whole interview right here and, and go hide underneath a blanket and cry. Is that all right? That's fine. That would pause? be an appropriate response. Yeah. Sure. Let's let's take let's take ten. I'm gonna go do that. Okay. While you're doing that, I'm going to go more into this subject so that I no. can believe it's like, did I hear is it, what you're saying that men are pooping out silicon fetuses? There's a whole industry. Yeah. Yeah. There's recipes that you Whoa. can get to make um to make sort of um pessaries that you would pop up your bum hole so that eventually they would they would break and um you know like disintegrate and then you're you're producing red substance from your bum and that's your menstruation you can make them yourself actually there's somebody that's uh, it's got a quite a successful video <laughs> online about how to do it out of tomato juice and you freeze make ice poles oh. which worries me because there's quite a lot of sugar content in fruit juice and so if you're going to put an ice pole that's got a lot of sugar content in it the through osmosis the like the tissues that are up there are going to dehydrate because the the, the 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 water molecules are going to land up being sucked out of the tissue so these people are going to land up with you know fissures they must which hurt they're so painful now that's a fetishistic thing and there's nothing wrong with having a fetish like no i think it's you know wouldn't be my cup of tea but that's not for me to judge but it doesn't make them female. There's a chap that was putting a helium thing. <laughs> he got a pipe with helium and he was putting up his bum hole to inflate his belly to make himself look like he was five months pregnant. And he was pretty dolled up. That's not, that's not somebody that is, you know, living their best life. <laughs> is the Scottish government though going to provide some sort of provision for, for these trans women so that they can register these silicon fetuses as, as children? Can they get a birth certificate for them? Because if not, I don't think that that's very inclusive. Affirming. Yeah, and also what's the gender of the silicon fetuses? Oh, you, you, you have to wait till the silicon fetus grows up into a real doll. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. can, you, can you break down really the mechanics of why male people cannot have periods. Just break it down for the lowest level out there. Beyond. Like you're explaining to a child. Because. Yes. Or a trans activist. Yes. <laughs> or, or, or an ally. Explain this to an ally. A, a trans because, ally. Because transition doesn't change your sex. As, as difficult as that might be for the people that desperately want to change their sex, they remain of their birth sex. There isn't such a thing as a birth gender. You're born male or female. Your gender might conflict with what your body actually is, and you can adjust it with hormone treatment or surgical treatment or how you style yourself and how you behave and what your sports and hobbies and interests and your sexuality and anything is. But you will always, if you were born female, you will die female. And if you're born male, you will die male. And nothing in this world will give a male person a uterus. 
although there is a, a an American person who's been in the this in the news this week for saying that they are looking to do uterine transplants into into trans women, which fascinates me because this is an internal organ. So what difference does it make? Like how does that have any impact on somebody's body dysmorphia that's related to their gender issues? If you can't see it, like you know, I've got a female pancreas, so you're going to start transplanting female pancreases into male people to replace their male pancreas. And it's had a lot of traction this week. I don't think it'll ever be a thing because if you do start doing organ transplants into people, you know, it's really complicated. It's not easy surgery. They have to take a lot of medication in order to maintain a transplanted organ. And you wouldn't actually need a uterus in order to um, be you know, pregnant as a as a male person. I was speaking to a gynaecologist, an obstetrician about this, that they could, in theory, use a, a fetus as if it was an ectopic pregnancy. You know, if a, if a fetus is developing outside of the uterus in a female person, if it's in the fallopian tube or if it's managed to get itself outside of the whole structure, it can grow in an abdominal cavity if it can get its placenta to attach. And she thinks that you could do that in a male person for a period of time. If you gave them the right hormones and an embryo and you attached it somewhere into their into their abdomen, some of the fetuses might be able to develop. It's unlikely that the fetus would survive for very long or the person. But if you're so addled by your fetish that you're, you know, you've got a butt baby and you're putting tomato juice up your bum. This is this is just the next step. There will be people that are prepared to take the risk in order to, you know, support this is what they see as being a female person. Male people cannot have periods, they cannot have babies, and it'd be much, much more sensible to help them come to terms with that than it would to try and start pretending we can have any successful outcome from implanting uteruses into bodies that are not designed for them. It absolutely is Frankensteinian and ludicrous and should should not be taken seriously. This woman's up there giving a proper academic address and nobody's going, shop. That is the that is the correct response to somebody coming out with absolute nonsense. Shut your face and sit down, go and have a wee cup of tea and get a grip. Yeah, this is using fetuses as sex toys. And, you know, I don't I don't consider fetuses like humans with human rights, but a lot of people do. And you would think that, uh, like, you, sh- you don't use other, you don't use human tissue as a sex toy. Although I guess a lot of these men do. I mean, a lot of these men use fully grown women as sex toys. I've been used <laughs> that way. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's pretty gross. You know, I, I'd like to, I'd like to actually bring in males like me who have had massive trauma to our, our loins that we paid for, for some reason. It's a bad deal. It's like buying a Ford Pinto, you know, you, 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 you wanted it and then you got it and you're like, why? Um, it's just like you, that. I know that you teach. It's exactly <laughs> like that. Uh, you teach women. Uh, this is a, uh, what do we call this? Dried January. You're trying to help women develop pelvic floor muscles so that they have better control over their um, leaking, I guess. I, I, I'm, I'm interested more in the mechanics of this, but when I heard you uh, give one of your lectures about this, I thought, I, I wonder people in, in my position who've had a, a lot of this, 
uh, surgical damage. Um, is that something that that males in my position or males generally can also uh, benefit from? Can Can you talk a little bit about what what you're teaching women and and tell us if it's applicable? Uh, to to more than just cervix havers <laughs> yeah um so pelvic health physio physical therapy you know incontinence is a very common thing amongst women the data used to we used to say it was one in three but it looks like it's more likely to be 60 percent of women will wet themselves a bit if they laugh or cough or sneeze and um as you get older the prevalence gets higher and the women who do, if they have a pelvic floor weakness, if they do their pelvic floor exercises three times a day for three months, then 74% of them can be dry on their own without seeing anybody at all. So this to me is a feminist issue because women who are unaware of it, who continue to wet themselves, it impacts on their sense of self in a way that is really fundamental and it's, it's deeply upsetting and distressing for them. They stop exercising. The biggest cause of premature death in um, for women in industrialised countries is coronary heart disease. So it's really important that women move. But if you wet yourself in the front row of Zumba, you tend to not go back to Zumba. So I get very annoyed about this because we should just have a blanket public health campaign and give women the information they need in order to be well and happy. So I had started on um, social media, reminding women to do their pelvic floor exercises. And I started on the 24th of September. So was tweeting or Instagramming three times a day until Christmas Eve. And it was hashtag dry by Christmas. And um, interestingly, an academic looked to the data. And so she's found that it works. And also there's accounts from women that it works really quickly. So instead of it being three months, they've become dry within two weeks. Now, I'd like to think that's because I'm a genius, but um, it's because they're subclinical. It's because then usually it takes about seven years for a woman to come to clinic. It's until this problem, my bladder is dominating her life, that she would be motivated enough to make time to go and get it seen to. Because there's lots of myths that this is common, it's normal, it's what happens when you're over 60, you've had three children, what did you expect? None of that's true. If you're pushing yourself, come to clinic, don't put up with it. You're quite right. Pelvic floor exercises are exactly the same for male people, whether they are trans identified or not. And there does seem to be a higher than I would say acceptable number of people that are having sexual alignment surgery that are left with leaking. Um, the complication rate, some of the data in the, in the papers that I've read they're saying that 30% of some of, of the, the male people that are having genital surgery are left needing to have um, catheters. That was Brazilian data, which raises a medical ethics issue. You know, is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to do the operation, have people with such poor outcomes that they can't pee? Because not being able to pee will kill you quite quickly. It's, it's fundamental to your, your health. Um, as far as I can see, there hasn't been any long-term studies done to any good long-term studies done to see how effective the surgery is. Um, and people are appear to be reluctant to go back and say, this isn't working for me. It's really hard for folk to speak up about it because they get criticised. It's almost like if you, if you say this isn't great, 
you know, I'm having problems managing my pee and my poo now that I've had this operation. The community criticises that individual for being negative about it because you'll put somebody else off of transitioning. Where, again, I would say, well, that would be a correct response. If you've been left with symptoms that are unacceptable and make your life less, your quality of life is reduced because you've had this operation, that kind of needs to be spoken about and flagged up. Um, I can't say that doing pelvic floor exercises would improve symptoms that trans women that are post-op would have as a blanket rule because it depends on what the problem is. But in theory, yes, it might help, but it depends. Bladders are quite complicated in the way that they work. In general, women's problems, the biggest cohort of them with their leaking, it will be stress and continence that's the problem. So the pelvic floor muscles just aren't strong enough to resist the forces that are pushing down from inside their tummy onto their bladder, and that's why it's leaking. But post-op injury is, is going to be individual. It's going to be different. But I would encourage anybody that's having symptoms after surgery to please follow up because it's, it's just fundamental to your dignity. You know, if you, if you can't control your bowel and your bladder, it does something to your, your sense of self the only people that get away with being incontinent are very very young if you've been continent you know if you've not been born with spina bifida or something that you've you're, you're never going to be able to manage that on your own if you've been continent and you lose it it does something to your soul it's very hard for people so i would encourage people that have got negative outcomes from their however minor it is please don't put up with it yeah you're right that it's part of the culture in the trans community to suffer silently about any of the poor outcomes that you face from surgery. And uh, if you're not suffering silently, then the other option is to brag about how amazing things are. And one thing that I see as I read people talk about their their follow-up or, you know, here's how I'm doing six months later, here here's how I'm doing 24 months later, they always, like the very first paragraph always says i regret nothing yeah and then there'll be four or five paragraphs of complications from the surgery and there's often revision surgery and things seem to be going wrong but the the first part of the report is always oh this is wonderful i'm so glad i did it uh, except for the fact that uh, parts of my genitals have rotted off but I, th I think that that's okay because um, if I complain about it, then I'm going to get backlash. Yeah, yeah. And, and that really worries me because, especially in the States, you know, the revision rate in the States seems to be disproportionately high. And because of the way that the healthcare system works, those surgeons are getting paid every time they do a revision. So it's not really in their interest to get it right the first time. And that's a medical ethics issue. Um, the last few people that I've met that I, I have had surgery that have told me that it was a great success and they're very happy, the last four people, four trans women that I've met, all of them, like one of my jobs is to look at symptoms that people don't tell you about, but that you can, that you can spot is, is odour. And a woman or a man or a trans woman or a trans man who's not managing to be continent for whatever reason, that's one of the signs that you would pick up as, as a clinician. And there was quite a strong smell of ammonia from these 
trans women who were saying, that's oh, brilliant. Life's so good now, so good. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, I don't believe you. I think that, I think you believe it, but I also think that you're leaking. And I would really like to see a clinic set up so that there's follow-up post-op and that these um, people who have the surgery come in to have follow-up checks. Because even if it's okay initially, as the years roll on and things change, then there is no follow-up. Well, I don't know how it is in the States, but not in the UK. We send um, young female people last year, or the year before, Scotland sent 51 under-18s to England to go and have double mastectomies. Now, normally, if a woman, like I say normally, I mean like the, your usual run-of-the-mill mastectomy, it's done with one breast, not two at the same time. And they get input um, to maintain the shoulder function because it's a big operation and you can lose the end of range of your movement and that can be very disabling. You can't put on a car seat belt. There's lots of movements that you would find difficult if you lose this movement. And as far as I can see, these people that are going for double mastectomies don't get any information for shoulder function. And when I was looking at the post-op um, advice, they're told don't lift your arms above 90 degrees for anything between six weeks and six months. So then I was looking at what the trans men are doing on TikTok and online. You know, the ones that are um, in the gym, they're filming themselves working out and all of them are doing biceps curls. None of them are doing lats. I'm like, is that because you can't actually lift your arm up? What are we doing? These are plastic surgeons that are doing the operations. They don't necessarily have that much information about shoulder function and you should never advise anybody to not move a limb through its whole range of movement for six months. That's what, what? makes no sense. Shut up, sit down, have a cup of tea. Are, are you um, sure? Cause I, I'm sure if you ask them though, Elaine, they'll say they regret nothing, that everything yeah. is exactly as they hoped for and they've never been happier. Yeah. They have to ask strangers to get things off the shelves for them at the, at the grocery. But other than that, everything is, is wonderful. I have a fantastic ability to delude myself in all sorts of things. I I did not realise that I am the age I am. I did not realise I'm supposed to behave in a dignified way and not, not flash a fake fanny in Parliament, for instance. I thought that would be fine. Um, that the people's, people's ability to ignore information that doesn't suit the world view in order to maintain happiness is, is is amazing really inspiring people can be quite sure that everything's fine even though they know it's not because they adapt you're right we'll get somebody else to do that movement all the time um i, I do worry about it i think we need to have proper you know even a literature review of the evidence in there's actually been some recently and the, the findings are not good. They are saying the, the literature says the data is poor. In 40 years of research into transgender health care, there isn't a paper that meets the criteria to go into Cochrane Review, which is you know the standard that's used for this is good research, this is bad research. And yet there's this whole industry that's springing up, particularly in the States, that appears to be completely without any any sort of measurement of good outcomes or not it, to be honest it keeps me awake at night because you can have successful outcomes you know gender distress can be alleviated by transition in some people 
Can it? Well, that's what the paperwork says. Mm. And people report it themselves that it does work and they're living their best lives. Well, that's not true. You're right. Well, what let's, we see uh, is... let's, let's go back about three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Thinking about it, you're right, Corinna. What we see is if they hadn't transitioned, they would have taken their own life. And that's not necessarily the same thing. I mean, that's what yeah. Buck Angel says, right? And I think I think yeah. Buck Angel is pretty widely regarded as a success story, mm-hmm. uh, even though mm-hmm. she had some serious gynecological life-threatening issues that she also talks about freely. Yep, that nearly yeah. killed yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I still, I, I, I believe her when she says that, you know, she, this is like an ongoing conversation that we have, right? Like, are there some people who really are happier with medical transition interventions versus without? And I've argued that, I argue the answer is yes, but only because therapy is so very poor that because because other treatments or other ways of addressing it or living with gender difference as we say are so underdeveloped so poor the likelihood of getting a bad therapist is so high the likelihood of not getting support not getting what you actually need is so high whereas you can get medical transition and so in some cases of that that is preferable to these ideal treatments that our society simply doesn't offer. And we're very glad for all of the plastic surgeons who have stepped up to fill that void that the therapists have failed to come in to address. We're, we're very lucky. And, and because we're on the topic, I just want to make sure, um, talking about transgender surgeries, sex reassignment surgeries, um, I have had one. Um, I don't regret anything. It, my my case turned out very, very well, aside from the fact that I can't enjoy sexual function and that I do leak a little bit. But aside from those things, it was perfect and it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Oh, and, and the scarring, which is permanent despite being told that it would go away. Aside from those things and and the fact that it impedes my ability to have relationships, this was the, the best choice I have ever made. I'm so sorry, Karina. I feel great. <laughs> now I think about my hysterectomy, which I benefited from hugely. But, you know, a choice like that, that I also have, and we can edit this part out. I've been wondering, Elaine, when I was going to talk to you about my own issues, my lady issues. Anything. All right. I've. I <laughs> This is the time. So uh, I was, I am so incredibly grateful for my hysterectomy. Um, Prior to it, I was having, I thought I had uh, interstitial cystitis, horrible urinary problems and other problems. It turned out what I had was fibroids, big fibroids that were uh, going necrotic, I guess, because I was in perimenopause and particularly a huge fibroid in my cervix. So presumably they were putting pressure on or irritating my bladder. And when I finally had the hysterectomy, my urinary issues resolved like completely. I I have such a good 
bladder. I am so urinarily continent now. I have no pain, but uh, I have rectal prolapse. And so kegeling away, I did go to physical therapy for that, which is all geared. There's not really a lot that's geared for that. And kegels are good no matter what. But when I ask you questions on Twitter about these exercises and what they, what they should be feeling like, it's like, that's, that's what I got in mind. It's like, I don't want any more prolapse (laughs) than I already got. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're right. The, the sort of the, there's always taboos within taboos. So the, it's, it's more comfortable to talk about for most people to talk about urinary incontinence than it is fecal incontinence. Once you get into it, you're leaking poo. That's a whole other world. I'm I'm not leaking poo. Um, It's just, you know, parts of my internal organs are working their way out that should be in. Yes. Which is why you, (laughs) but, but it was the best decision you ever made. You don't, you you know what? I would rather have this. I would so much rather have this. This is nothing compared to what I had before. It really is like, this is not, uh, I was in so much pain before and, uh, urinary incontinence is comp- also, I was bleeding, you know, I was pissing blood, um, and shitting blood and it, like doubled over in pain all the time. This is nothing compared to that. It's nothing. You're, you're sure that wasn't ketchup. I'm sure <laughs> my, I was in really bad shape. Okay. <laughs> I was really all sick. Right. Uh, and in a ton of pain. And I like being free. Like what I have to deal with now is, you know, a few extra minutes in the shower to check things out <laughs> and rearrange things manually. But, um, you know, I'd rather not have that. But, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm continent. I'm on bike rides, on these long bike rides I take with my friends. It's It's my dude cyclist friends that have to stop and go to the bathroom. Not me. I have... I have so much more continence power than I ever dreamed possible. It's a small price to pay, but it is mm-hmm. a price and it's weird because I'd never had this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And have they given you help about how to manage it and about, you know, bowel management so that you're not sitting straining and yeah. you're having a good poo technique? I have good poo technique. Yes, stuff. there's a physical therapist online that has stuff about posture and whatnot. But there's just there's just a certain yeah. degree of it that has been arrested, basically. Uh not really reversed, but arrested. So and it's it's not bad. Um Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem with prolapse. Once you once you've got a sort of so what happens is the the organs that are sitting there so in in female people you've got your bladder your uterus and your rectum and male people you've got your bladder and your rectum and in both sexes they're supported by your pelvic floor so if those muscles which their job is to squeeze and to lift so their job is to hold holes shut and to be able to resist forces that are coming down and then relax so that they can let pee and poo out um, so if the muscles aren't able to do those things in a coordinated and efficient way, you're going to get symptoms. Um, they're far more common in females because of, well, just our anatomy is rubbish. <laughs> it's just evolved really badly um, because it's evolved in order to give birth rather than for efficiency. And 
being bipedal means that you're always working against gravity all the time and it's it's really not great in a broader pelvis compared to in a narrower pelvis. So what happens in, in prolapse in females is that the pelvic floor muscles and all of the gristle that holds everything where it should, the, or, the organs above where they should be, they're not doing their job properly and the organs will shift slightly. So a bladder would be that the bladder itself, instead of being held here, it's just tipped slightly and it's pushing in towards the vaginal wall. Now, depending on how much of a prolapse there is, depends on you know, how much of a shift you're going to see. And it is possible for women to have a prolapse that becomes external, that you know, the whole shebang falls out, which is not a physio issue. That's a, that's a surgical issue. Um, a rectal prolapse is slightly different because bum holes are really interesting. <laughs> like the way, the way that that you poo, the mechanics of that, it's absolutely fascinating. I think we should do a documentary about it. It's so clever. Yeah, <laughs> up your bum hole, at the up at the sphincter, there's little nerves whose job is to determine. You know, when you have the urge to have a poo. These little nerve endings tell whether that is a solid, a liquid or a gas. And they know whether you've got somewhere to go to have a poo right at that minute. And if you don't, because there's no toilet, you're sitting on a bus or you're in an important meeting, they effectively send a message to your brain to say, not now. And they send the poo back up so it's not bothering your sphincter and they wait for the next time round. Oh. That's amazing. That is why that's, that's... for three days when I was at the Michigan Family Reunion Music Festival, where they had only these porta Janes, every time I didn't poop for the entire weekend. And it wasn't because of this, you know, my brain up here. It was like every time I went into one of those porta Janes, my body was just like, nope, this is not happening. No, nope. <laughs> this is not the place for me. You needed cocoa nibs. Even cocoa nibs <laughs> would not have done. It was amazing. I I was doing everything I could to coax my body, but it was having none of that. And I was yeah, impressed, but like I survived. It. Like I didn't get sick. I didn't explode or anything. It was just like it knows. It knows yeah. more than I do. It's almost like it's got its own <laughs> self. If you go traveling and you go into a different time zone, your bubble's like that. Nut. Nope, no, want to be at home with my own toilet. You get home after a two week trip and you go for the world's biggest jobby because it's like, yep, this is this is right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bill, Bill's like toddlers. They just like what they like. And if they're not going to cooperate, they're not going to cooperate. Um, so for somebody that's got a rectal prolapse, because the mechanics of how your bum hole actually works are complicated then you need to be on top of stool consistency. You know, whether you need a Bristol stool chart in the back of every school toilet. This amazing PhD that somebody did where they measured the consistency of poo and are you a one or are you a five, like going from something that's little rabbit pellets to actual liquid. And I think that if we spoke much more frankly about jobbies, a lot of people would be a lot happier because constipation is incredibly common. It's one in six, wait till I get this right. I want to say it's one in six children that's constipated and fewer than adults. But if, you, if you're not pooing and say you're older, you know, somebody that's going into, 
you know, a great age, it can absolutely destroy their quality of life. You can't sleep, you're uncomfortable all the time, you're in pain, you're miserable. Same with children, children that, you know, are wet at night, they can't get dry, so they can't go in overnight sleepovers, it's impacting on their education if they're going on school trips, and it absolutely ruins their confidence confidence the vast majority i mean about 98 percent of those children are constipated they just need a wee prune <laughs> a wee prune every morning and get them pooned properly but it's a total taboo but just our westernized westernized societies are very reluctant to talk about it you know if you're in, in india or china or japan they're very interested in poo even the german Germans but, are famously um, Scotland and the States. Germans are famously interested in poo. And uh I guess the Dutch must be also because there's this type of toilet in some European countries where there's a shelf for you to examine yeah. your products of yeah. the day. And I read that's to do like when these when those toilets were, were developed, you know, 150 years ago or whatever hundred years ago it was so that you could have looked to see if you had worms because they eat a lot more pork normally than we would do in scotland yeah which makes total sense i don't want to brag about my poop too not much, too much but uh, oh, since on. we're out since we're on the topic my poop is excellent <laughs> i don't regret anything about it aside from a couple of things that i would change um when in 2017 i went on a very low carb diet and it changed my poop quality. And those those little rabbit poops that you talked about, I don't get those anymore. So when I have when I have bowel movements, they are they are healthy and not strained at all. So I most of my diet is is protein and fat, and then the the vegetables I eat are high fiber vegetables. So having very low carbs and very very little processed foods seems to have uh, been very good for me. You go, girl. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. I think I've probably got a... I might even have a Bristol stool chart. Oh, my handy. God. All right. Well, I just want to uh, say... The chocolate, too. Lots of chocolate. Cho- yeah. With your your your, your nibs. Mm. Which, uh, even though they were working very, very well, I learned that they're actually better if you eat them. God. <laughs> That's true for tomato except you have to taste tomato them. juice too. But all right. Yeah, the tomato juice didn't work out as well. It kept leaking. All right. Oh, I wanted to say that um there is a taboo about talking about this, but also now that I know more about men and fetishes, I am more worried about discussion of these topics because of the getting off on them that certain men will do. You mean like large multinational companies seem to be encouraging by paying male people to advertise the tampons. Yes. And so uh, that is a real disincentive to speak freely. It's not even just the te- general, ta- that's probably why we have these taboos or perhaps we have the fetishes. Like anything that is taboo is going to be a fetish. I don't know yeah, chicken egg, yeah. but that concerns me yeah. more than like imagining my mother because my mom can talk about this no problem. She loves it actually. 
No, that's an important point. Um, because being co-opted into somebody else's fetish without your permission is never is never nice. It's not a good thing to happen in society. But nor is people suffering because they don't have evidence-based information. So, you know, I think ignorance is never a good thing. But if you can educate people so that they can just have a better life, then that's a good thing. And the people that are fetishising it, say to them, behave, shut up, sit down, have a wee cup of tea. That's trans, But that's transphobic and bigoted, see? Then we'll go to jail if we do that. I, not yet. I don't mind. Not yet. Not, uh, not, not in the free United States. We'll get our comic books banned. Yeah. 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 I am quite comfortable now with being transphobic. It, eventually you get used to it. It doesn't bother me. I'm not transphobic. It doesn't It's been interesting with the sort of onslaught that I've had over the last few weeks online. I've missed a lot of it because I'm busy. I've got, I've got a lot of unpaid duties to do because <laughs> I'm female. And um, so a, a lot of it's passed me by. But um, like, so there's some people that don't find me sexually attractive and feel it really important to let me know. I don't. <laughs> oh. But you know, you're way out. You're way out my league. Facial hair would would help for Corinna. Oh, I've got that. Oh, oh wow. Menopause. <laughs> Menopause is a killer. There's a song, there's a Scottish band um, called Deacon Blue and they have a song called Chocolate Girl and I will send it to you. It's a really good song. And you could I don't know, put it on your Spotify playlist or fetishizer or whatever mm. you feel inclined to do. I want to say one more thing about prolapse is I believe that, uh, I mean, not all prolapse is caused by lack of Kegel muscle strength. I mean, hysterectomy, you take out an organ that has stacked up the other organs around it and prolapse of one type or another is very common. Again, I would rather have this than bladder prolapse yeah 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 you're right there's a ligament that attaches from the top of your uterus that basically holds everything up so if you lose that organ you lose the some of the support um and what you should do is get information about how to manage it and how to look after your bowels and and once you have these symptoms then they need to be managed for life and this is how to do it and hopefully that'll stop it from deteriorating and if it does don't put up with it, please yep, come to That's what I got. Yeah. Although we don't have clinic here in the US, we have a messed up health health care system. But you know, I'm I'm glad that I went. I did. I, I went quite early and uh it's managed and it'll be managed for life. And like I say, Corinna, I have no regrets compared to what I had before. Boy howdy. But if you don't have these problems before, you know, I wouldn't recommend it, but boy did I have problems before. Like I never, I never rode bike centuries like I do now until I had my hysterectomy. I am much healthier and much fitter since my hysterectomy. I, I should approach my doctor, Nina, and ask for a hysterectomy because I'd like to get on the bike yeah, more. Yeah, that'll do it. He might have to uh, transplant a uterus into you first, but once that's done, then you can get a hysterectomy. You'll feel a lot better. Uh, that sounds good. Surgeries, I, I understand, are, are not a big no, deal not at, all. at all. Yeah, Elaine. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Uh, I'm sure after listening to this conversation that a lot of our 
listeners are going to be eager to learn more about your works, where should they go first? Um, the the website, which is really bad, but I'm going to improve it any day now, is gussetgrippers.co.uk. G-U-S-S-E-T-G-R-I-P-P-E-R-S. And I'm at Gussie Grips on Twitter and Instagram and all those things. If you put in Gusset Grippers, it'll come up. All right. Do you have a, a, a book or anything that you're working on? I am. I'm working on this book about about vulvas um, very slowly, but I need to get it finished by Easter. And then I'm not sure. I'm, I need to go back. I need to make a decision about what it is I'm actually going to do. I was going to tour with comedy stuff. I was going to do some research. I was going to do all sorts of things. So quite soon I need to actually figure it out. Um, but right now there's nothing to buy. There's nothing to see. Except a Merkin. <laughs> but wait. <laughs> very refreshing. <laughs> yeah. I'll go to American production. Oh my gosh, branded Merkins. Oh my God. I would totally buy an Elaine Miller Merkin. I was going to be um, do a video about how to make them because there's a couple of women's marches and rallies coming up in the UK because obviously this problem is, is ongoing. We need to get our rights back. And they're all making Merkins to come along and I'm just chuckled. It's turned into a whole thing in its own, which is very It could pleasing. be a set, right? Nude pantyhose, Merkin. And they could be pre-sewn onto the pantyhose. Oh, you'd make a fortune. Yeah. Yeah. Not a fortune. I mean, by a fortune, I mean not much, but several several hundred yeah. pounds. I would buy one, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh. The signature. I'll design your like, you logo, one. and then return. I'll send you a, a decent blonde. Uh, you American. know what? The drapes do not match the curtains. <laughs> you can have. A- <laughs> you can have a variety. Oh yeah, you can do any color. Yeah. I've been knitting and. I've been knitting some knitting. bay ones and some ginger ones. And, yeah. I, I I wonder if you could make one for me, though, in, in my natural hair color, which as a trans activist is blue. <laughs> ah, I, yes. That would be great. I have got some blue angora. Mm, perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we, we're going to start a new fashion trend. You have started a new fashion trend. I would like to help in my special way. And uh, I guess that wraps up this episode of Heterodorks. Thank you, (laughs) TERFs and trannies, for listening, as always. Bye. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support us by visiting our page at anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by supporting Nina Paley at patreon.com slash Nina Paley. You can also support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast site, such as Apple Podcasts. Thank you.